Ephesians chapter 1. William Randolph Hearst was a newspaper publisher, and he invested much of his fortune in collecting art treasures from around the world. One day, Mr. Hearst found a description of some valuable items that he felt he must add to his collection. And so he sent his agent abroad, searching around various parts of the world to find these particular items. And after months of searching, the agent reported back to Mr. Hurst that he had finally found the treasures that he had been seeking for. They were, in fact, located in Mr. Hurst's own warehouse. You see, he had been searching frantically for something that he already owned and had just forgotten about the treasures that were already his. I want to talk to you for a few minutes this evening about hidden treasures. Maybe more appropriately would be forgotten treasures. I believe oftentimes it is a tactic of the enemy of our soul to discourage and defeat us, to trick us into thinking that we are less than what we are. And you know, the devil, if he can't rob us of our faith, he will simply try to bring us to a place of being a discouraged weak and anemic Christian. I was thinking over and reading these passages of Scripture, some last night and some this afternoon, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. This is a prayer of the Apostle Paul for the believers at Ephesus. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus... And your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When I begin reading this passage and I look at where the requests really start, There are three specific things that Paul is asking for, but he he asks a 
a prelude request before he gets to the three uh, requests at the core of his prayer. Uh, he asks for uh, a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your hearts being enlightened. And, and what I hear Paul saying is that what he's asking for is something really big. This is big. This is something that is going to be hard for you to wrap your minds around. It's going to be hard for you to grasp. And so you're going to need divine help even to comprehend what it is that I'm going to ask God to give you. He says that the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And so he's saying this is going to take so much for us to understand, so much for us to comprehend, that we need God's help, we need his special wisdom, his special revelation, even to get a handle on what it is he's asking for. And then he launches in and gives us the, the details of these three requests. He says, first of all, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. Now later on in chapter 2 and verse 12, we find that these are people who had at one time been without hope and without God in the world. Look at chapter 2 verse 12. Remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. And now Paul says, I'm praying that you can grasp, that you can really understand the hope of his calling. Now, we use the word hope in our English language as kind of a ethereal, mysterious sort of a thing. It's, it's a you hear somebody say, I hope so, that is a, a, a kind of an uncertain statement. Do you know what I mean? I hope so. Are you going to make it to church? Uh, well, I hope so. We could fill in the, the, the blanks there, numbers of scenarios. But here, when Paul says that you may know the hope to which he has called you, he is talking about hope as an assurance. Hope as an assurance that God is able to perform that which he has promised. We read over in the, the letter to the Hebrews, the definition uh, of faith. Faith, it says, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So what is that like? That is like having a check written out to you. It's got your name on it. It's got a certain amount written there. And uh, just, just for the sake of illustration, let's say you have a check written out, made to you for uh, the amount of $100. What you have there is not actually $100. But you have a substance an evidence that represents $100.
And what you can do is sign your name to the back and take that to your bank or the bank on which that check is drawn. And there they will give you the actual $100 legal tender, the money. That's faith, the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. And the reality for this hope as a Christian, the hope to which we are called is this, that my present circumstances do not determine the meaning of my life. It is the reality that God in Christ Jesus has entered into this present world and he has done something to change the whole fabric of reality that we live in. He went to the cross and took our sins upon himself there. He went into the grave and then the third day he rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And because of this, friends, you and I can live in daily victory in our lives, in this present world. That is the hope of his calling. And no matter what my present circumstances might be, those circumstances, those problems do not have to define my life. Now, I can and I have at times forgotten about this hope. I at times, like Peter, have lost sight of the master of the Lord Jesus and have been distracted by the tossing waves and billows around me and I begin to go down and I can do nothing but say, Lord, help me, I'm drowning, blub, blub, blub. That's, that's in the original Greek. But when we get our eyes refocused on Jesus, we will find again that our life is more than our present circumstances or problems, but our life is defined in the perspective of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you may know the hope of his calling. At one time, we were without hope and without God in the world. But then in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he prays that you may know the hope of his calling. And then he goes on with the second request in this prayer, that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What in the world does this mean? I would like to point out to you, first of all, whose inheritance we are talking about. Now, if we read over this quickly, we might think of our inheritance as saints. You know, the scripture tells us that that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance. In fact, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 11, Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we do, as Christians, have an inheritance. But I want to point out to you that this verse is not talking about our inheritance. 
Notice whose inheritance it is. The hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what it seems that Paul is referring to are a number of passages of scripture from the Old Testament. And we can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and read a, a few words from that verse. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. And then one more that you might be familiar with, chapter 26 of Deuteronomy in verse 18. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession, as he has promised you. So what is this saying? Is this saying that God, out of all of the peoples of the earth, that God just randomly chose Abraham and his descendants to be his favored people, and it's just tough luck for everybody else? No, that's not what God is saying, and that's not what this passage is saying, not even in Deuteronomy. But you remember God's original promise to Abraham was that in you and in your seed, all nations of the world will be blessed. And God specifically chose the nation of Israel through which to send that blessing upon the world. And so we, in Christ, are a part of that inheritance. What God once claimed in the Israelites, he now claims in us. And Paul, in the book of Romans, uses the language of the Gentiles having been grafted in to the vine. And now what a wonderful privilege we have as believers to be a part of his royal inheritance his glorious inheritance. This, has, uh, this idea has convicted me lately as I have thought at times, what kind of a return am I bringing to God on his investment in me? And there have been times when I've, I've lately searched my heart and I've been praying, oh God, help me to give you back everything of me, everything that I am, everything that I can because of your investment in me and in my life. He invested in you and in me the life of his only son that we could be, as Paul says, a part of his glorious inheritance in the saints. But finally this evening, and this is where the dynamite comes in, that we might know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Friends, what this is, is, first of all, resurrection power. Resurrection power. I like looking over at the prayer Paul prays 
at the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians. And there in verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And that power we read about here in chapter 1 is the resurrection power, the same power that was at work when God raised Jesus from the dead. Not only is it resurrection power, but it is victorious power. Because we see here that after God raised Jesus from the dead, he lifted him and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I am not interested in being a defeated Christian, but sometimes... I struggle to live in a place of consistent victory because of forgetting who I am and where I am in Christ. But friends, I'm glad that the scripture tells us there is a victory that is far above not just our circumstances and our present problems and questions and struggles, but there is a victory that is above all rule and authority and power. And we look at this and we say, well, yeah, but this is, this is talking about Jesus, that Jesus was resurrected and raised to sit at God's right hand. And that's true, it is, but friends, if we look down in chapter 2, we see there, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the question is, how do we get there? How do we come to the place of living in and enjoying that kind of victory? Well, I think we can very simply ask, how did Jesus come to that place of victory? Simply put, I, I, as I was quickly trying to put together the slides, I just put in strength and weakness. But the reality is it's not just weakness, it's death. The only way for Jesus to come to this place of experiencing the resurrection power of God and the victorious power of God that raised him up and seated him at God's right hand was by going to the cross and by surrendering his will fully to the Father's will. Yes, he expressed the desire, if possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But in the end, he came down to that place of full surrender. And the battle for Christ was won in the garden when he committed himself fully to the Father's will and said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And friends, there is victory for you and I, resurrection power for you and I, when we come to this point of willingness to die to ourselves. 
to say everything that I am and everything that I have and everything that I wish for, I, I wrap it all up and I bundle it all up and I present it to God as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to him, which is a, just a reasonable act of worship, a reasonable act of service. It's not fun or pleasant to talk about death and dying. In a very literal sense, I feel like I've done too much of it lately. But friends, the reality for the Christian is that beyond death and dying, there is an empty tomb, there is a resurrection, and there is life, and there is victory, and God can lift us up above our circumstances and above our problems. But it follows. It follows after the cross. It follows after the cross. I'm not sure where you are this evening. But I would like to just honestly tell you I've struggled throughout this afternoon. Struggled in preparing for the service this evening. And I want to ask, I'm going to invite Sister Henry if you would come to the piano. And uh, let's join together and sing in closing.